Well, it's always fun getting to talk to someone like our guest today. Uh, Ex-racer, author, co-founder of Training Peaks WKO Software, and founder of the Peaks Coaching Group. One of the best coaches in the world, Hunter Allen, joins us today on Bobby and Jens. Hunter Allen, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Bobby and Jens, for inviting me. What, a, what an honor. Well, I, I tell you one thing. Not everyone may recognize you walking down the street, but <laughs> I think everyone recognizes your name from your book, Training and Racing with a Power Meter. Um but before we get into that, because I'm really curious of how that whole project started, you know, I know we raced together, um, but give us and our listeners a little bit of like information of how you got into cycling, because obviously it's an uber passion for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where uh, when I was a kid growing up, my neighborhood friend had a motorcycle and I wanted a motorcycle and my parents said, no, you can't have a motorcycle. <laughs> And so they, and I said, well, what about the little BMX bikes? Can I get one of those? And, uh, they got me a little BMX bike and, uh, they said, oh, you know, that's going to be safe. You'll be fine. <laughs> little did they know. Uh, but I raced BMX all the way from the time I was 11 till I was 18 and then raced mountain bikes after that. And then uh, jumped on the road bike right in the, the collegiate scene back in 88, you know, 89, when it was just getting started. And then, uh, you know, then raced in Spain on a team in Spain in 92. And, uh, and then was fortunate enough to turn pro in the U.S. Uh, and, and for the Navigators team in the middle 90s. So uh, just, just, just raced, you know, in South America and Canada. Didn't race like you guys did, but uh, had a lot of fun doing it. And when did your passion for coaching and power data and heart rate uh, data started? Did you realize yourself, I need to train myself better and smarter? Or when did that come along? That, that's a great question, Jens. You know, I always wanted a coach uh, in, the, in the late 80s and uh, in the early 90s. And there were really no coaches. Uh, there was nobody there that you could hire. I mean, there were only the, kind of the national team coaches, and and there just wasn't a coach that you could you could work with. So when I retired from pro racing, and I thought, wow, you know, I've got a tremendous amount of knowledge. Nobody else is out there is sharing this knowledge. So in in 1996, I started coaching some athletes, uh, and then really started to 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 build that and and hire other other friends of mine who were pro cyclists to be coaches uh and then when in 2000 um one of my clients bought a power meter and uh he said hey would you coach me with this what would you know and i was like wow you know we never had power meters when we were racing i don't know what that is you know is 500 watts good is uh, 100 watts bad you know i didn't know um, so I bought a power meter and started training again. And then uh, we both went to uh, the first ever power seminar in the USA that was uh, done by Dr. Coggin. Uh, Dean Golich, uh, who's who was a coach for the national team at the time and then uh, and still has, has been coaching forever. And then Dr. Alan Lim. Uh, and they taught the seminar 
And the whole time they kept saying, you know, this is the future, this is the future, but we don't have any data, a way to analyze this information. And so uh, my client, Kevin Williams and I, he sat down at lunch and we said, you know, I'm a programmer, we can build the software. And I was like, wow, we can build software, that's cool. So that was how the software, you know, Cycling Peaks, we called it, got started um, initially. So yeah, it really started back then, 2000, 2001 for that part. Wait a second, Kevin Williams, who is a programmer, I think he recently retired from the whole WKO plus, what was it, plus three, four, and now we're on on five. He was one of your clients, and it was, and he was the one that bought the power meter that started you down this road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That is awesome. So, power, especially in the '90s, early 2000s, right? We heard, you know, Greg LeMond made it popular. Bjorn Aris made it popular. I bought one in 1999, and it was just, I guess, almost a necessity, but like you said, there was no real guidance around that. So I would use it. I had a coach that would give me some information, never really had any feedback, and back then, the power meter was the SRM, which produced an independent file for every day. And I would go in there and I would kind of try to make sense of what I'm looking at. I knew when I pushed stop and when I, or actually it was the set button, right? I, I knew, okay, start the interval, push set, finish the interval, push set. I'd go back and I'd kind of look at it and mark it up a little bit and see this, that, all these squiggly lines, but they just kind of stayed in my computer, right? Like I didn't really know that the fatigue that I created on one day would roll over to the next until I'm walking out of the 2008 Las Vegas bike show. And there is a line of people kind of sitting down on the ground, eating sandwiches because there was, it was lunchtime. And all of a sudden I heard, Hey Bobby, it's Dirk, Dirk Friel, who I've known since a junior in Colorado. Right. And you, you guys know how it is walking around those those um, bike shows, right? You're just taking cards from people. And he hands me a card. He goes, yeah, you know, we just started this, uh, you know, company called Training Peaks. And and it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, it was kind of like I just wanted to get going. But that was the first time I heard about a way of not only storing your data, but actually being able to go back and retrospectively look at it. And it had value not only of the past, but then of your fatigue metrics moving forward. So tell me, because I understand, and I need you to clarify this, how did that whole thing, we know that that Kevin was one of your clients, but how did WKO Plus and eventually Training Peaks start? Like, I need to know the history. So, uh, we, so Kevin and I built Cycling Peaks software and 
Dr. Andy Coggin really helped us uh, define a lot of those metrics and come up with those things. I mean, I'm, I'm really good at, at ideas and I'm really good at seeing trends. I'm really good at, at understanding uh, the statistics and all of that. But I don't have a, a, a you know a PhD in math, and I certainly don't I don't have a PhD in exercise physiology. And so Dr. Coggin helped us with coming up with those things. So I went to Dr. Coggin and said, "Hey, I need a score. Um, I want to I want to have a, a score for every single ride." And that was became training stress score because the reason I wanted a score was because I knew that we could then take that score and then build a cumulative way to understand how fatigue, how our rest, uh, how cumulative fatigue, which we call chronic training load, uh, built over time. And we could we could periodize our training through using the score. And so that was really the whole um, impetus back in 2003, um, 2000, well, actually 2002, for training stress score was to, to eventually get to this place where we could back into you know, saying, okay, you know, an athlete comes to you on this day, on, you know, July the 1st, I want to have the best ride of my life, then we could back into that using math, using the, the dose and response method. So we built that in, 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 uh, in, so Cycling Peaks came along and then Dirk Friel and his dad, um, Joe, built a company called Training Bible. We merged those two companies together. So Cycling Peaks, Training Bible became Training Peaks. Uh, that was around 2005, 2006. Uh, then um, about the same time, we launched the second version of WKO. Uh, Kevin and I did with the performance manager chart in it. And that's that, that piece of the puzzle, the performance manager chart that has the chronic training load how much you've done over the last 42 days, the acute training load, the stuff that you've done just this week, like how sore are my legs right now? And then the difference between those two is, is your, what we call your training stress balance or your rest and, or freshness. How fresh am I? So Jens, like for example, so tell me, um, you know, at the end of the Tour de France, you know, um, think back to 2014, your last Tour de France, or think of any of the Tour de France's that you've done. I mean, how tired were you at the end of those races? Well, I believe <clears throat> there's not many sporting events harder than the Tour de France. It is very, very demanding. And you realize how tired, how tired you are that um, you'll be at the start line with 85 heart rate and then you do the first acceleration and your heart will jump up to 186 on the first day. But now you do the first acceleration, your heart rate just moves up to 155. And that's almost your max heart rate for the rest of the day. So that's a clear sign always of a massive fatigue. You, you have no more freshness, like this quick accelerations are gone. But when the going gets tough, you still have this second and third breath right? You go, I never feel good. But you look around and go, oh, there's only three guys left, so I must be good. I don't feel, but I must be. So inside, there's still this go power is still there, but there's never fresh. It's never like, oh my God, I'm going to attack and I'm going to push a thousand watts. You don't have that anymore towards the end of the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. and, and so would you do at the end of the Tour de France, did you go to any of the post-tour criteriums and do those or would you just rest right after the tour? 
It did depend. Uh, some days I would be uh, with the French team. I would be just resting. Later, then, when I was back with Bobby at uh, CSC, um, no, um, back then, Tour of Germany was about seven to ten days after the tour. So that, uh, I mean, contrary to Bobby, I'm a total amateur with training and science. But even I realized that seven or eight days, it is too long to keep the engine going, but it's way too short to stop completely, like, let's go, don't touch the bike for three or four days, and then get back up in shape. Eight days is not enough. So that's when I started doing the crits. So I had my dad driving me around. So I was resting all the time, doing a little crit, one hour, just spinning the legs, don't hurting too much, but keep a little bit of tension in the body. And they helped me to win the Tour of Germany twice. So it helped me to stay fresh, but yet still recover a little. Right. So so that's that's a perfect example, right, of, of building your chronic training load up in the Tour de France then having that little rest period that you adapt and you get stronger from, and then boom, tour of Germany where you're able to win and probably feel pretty fresh and have a, a you know an, a bump in your your functional threshold power. So, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example. Wow. So now that you developed that program in 2005, 2006, you said you started with training peaks. Um, and I'm sure that you and Dirk and everybody was convinced it is good. But that's, for the start, only in theory. What was the first comment, the first real-life feedback you, you would be getting from a rider? Was it positive or was it also negative feedback? Or was there a rider coming, man, I trusted your program and I felt better like never before. Anything like that, like like real-life feedback for you? Sure, sure. So it was really interesting because... Um, I'm also a big fan of Formula One. I love I love race cars too. And when you think of Formula One, the technology we call it is you know it, it trickles down, right? So so the best drivers and the best technology comes down, and eventually it comes down to our cars um, that we're driving around. But in the power meter training world, it went the opposite way. So the first people to really begin. Um, who were experts in having the most success in using a power meter were all these uh, engineers and, and masters riders and, and data nerds, uh, you know, who weren't professional riders. And so we were, we were talking with all these guys who were in their 40s and 50s and, and you know, category three amateur racers, and they were having tremendous success in, in learning how to peak at the right time and learning the exact amount of time they needed to rest and to train way for, for, for multiple years before we even started talking to professional riders like, like you guys at the highest level and started to show them, show you like, look, this works, you know? Um, so it was really interesting because it, it trickled up, the technology trickled up to the pros. Once the, once the pros, like, like, you know, people yourself and your peers got power meters, then every magazine, right? Every magazine in the US and all over Europe, every time you'd, I'd open up the magazine, I'd look on the bike, and, oh, there's a power meter. Jens has got a power meter on his bike. Oh, you know, Bobby Julek's got a power meter on his bike and you can see it. And then once all of the amateurs started seeing it, then it actually started trickling back down. And so, um, but yeah, 
and also too, you know, it, it does, it doesn't, it's not good for everybody. Um, you know, if you obsess about your numbers and you're, you're constantly talking about numbers all the time and you, it just sucks you in, then it can be hard. Uh, I had an athlete once that I coached and she was the best endurance mountain biker in the world at the time. And, uh, but she was completely assessed with her power numbers. And she called me up one time on the phone and was just in tears, you know, and, and I was, I was like, oh my God, somebody died. You know, her dog got hit by a car something having terrible, you know, she's calling me on the phone and she's like, I'm like, finally, I got her calmed down. I'm like, what? What's wrong? She's like, well, you had me doing 200 watts at two times 20 minutes today, and I did 198 watts, and I just couldn't do 200 watts. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. It's okay. It's okay. You know, and so I had to tell her, her, uh, her boyfriend at the time, I was like, look, you have to tape over her power meter. Just take a piece of tape, tape over it, when she gets back from the rides, I want you to download it, send me the data, and then I could change, you know, change your training plan. So for some people, it, it's not perfect for them. Well, for sure, I was a big believer in it. And um, I have to say, moving into coaching um, right after my career, it was the hardest thing to do to get the pros to actually see the value in this. And okay, Training Peaks in 2009 was not what it is now. And the, the, the basic understanding, because there was such a odd kind of cloak and dagger thing. These guys had power meters on. They didn't even really know what they were looking at. But the moment you asked to attach your coaching account to their rider account, it became like a, a big brother sort of thing. Like, oh, the, everybody's going to see what I'm doing. And man, it was an uphill battle uh, for the longest time. And then I don't know what changed. Just suddenly everyone was like, yeah, you can see my data. Yeah, you can coach me. Um, there was some transformation there from somewhere around 2010 to 2014 where it got a lot more easy because of, in my opinion, one thing, and that was your book. Like, all of a sudden, people who didn't know what they were looking at were able to go in an offline situation and read your book, Racing and Training with a Power Meter. Uh, and it seemed to really just turbocharge the understanding of this very complex programming, right? I mean, when you look at it, a watt is pretty simple, right? Like torque times RPM, that's a watt. And if you know what you're looking at and you accept that zone of tolerance, like you were just mentioning, that you don't have to be exactly on the number. But I remember talking to you not too long ago, so I hope I get the same response. What was your main motivation to write a book in the first place about training and racing with a power meter. Uh, I was really tired of answering the same email over and over and over. You know, it was like, we're just get, getting the same question. How do I use this? What do I do? You know, I mean, it was just over and over. And, and so finally, uh, you know, I told Dr. Cog and I said, Hey, Andy, you know, we just got to write a book for this so we can get this knowledge out here. 
And so uh, we were uh, teaching a power meter seminar in Boston, actually. And and uh, we that evening, we just wrote the outline out, you know, right there in a hotel room. Boom. We popped the outline out. I started working on the book and uh, and it took me two years to convince Velo Press to publish the book, actually, because they thought it was they were going to sell any of it, any copies. And um, finally, I had to fly out to, to Boulder and do a presentation with them and convince them to, to, to publish this book. And um, they said, OK, we'll do it, you know, like being really nice to me, you know, et cetera. Um, and then they published the book and, you know, it just became super popular, you know, and then the second edition, they were like, oh, we got to have the second edition. Let's do that. And then the third edition. Um, and, and now it's in nine different languages and, you know, over 200 plus thousand copies have been sold, you know, and, and so it's just been the reference manual. And, uh, you know, and, and that's been that's been really fun. It's been really fun. And um, now. Did you try some of these uh, programs on yourself or did you have somebody like, look, we don't talk about it, but I give you this training program, this power meter, and you train for a month. Did you do some real life testing or you just trusted the numbers and your experience? And if you had to test a uh, crash test dummy, who was it? Right. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a, a lot of, of, lot of different athletes, um, over the time, you know, especially the years, um, you know, the early years, 2000 through 2005, um, you know, we're coaching a lot of different athletes during the time. Uh, and, and everybody, you know, we were developing and refining a lot of the, the concepts during that time. Um, and, and things we got wrong. I mean, we, we definitely, it took us a while, especially with that performance manager chart to figure that out. Um, and made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, for example, you know, I, I had one, cl one client that wanted to do a, uh, a training camp in June and he came into it, uh, with not a lot of training. So his chronic training load was around 40, um, which 40 TSS per day, which for everybody who, who doesn't know what that means, that means that basically you've, 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 you've done, Uh, the last six weeks, 40 training stress score points in a day, which is about a, a half an hour of intense riding a day. Not a lot. And then he's, oh, so we went and did this training camp for seven or eight days. And he was much harder than, you know, than he'd done anything previous. And his chronic training load went up, doubled, went to 80. At the end of the week, I said, you know, we should try a little bit more. I think he can go even farther. And I pushed him the following week and he went up to a hundred. So a very quick ramp in his, in his, in his training load. Um, and then I said, okay, let's rest. Um, so he rested. And after a couple of weeks, I was looking at the, the model and I was looking at our numbers and saying, oh, you know, you're rested, you're recovered, you're ready to train again. And so I talked to him and he said, no, I'm not really ready to train again. Um, I'm tired. I'm, oh, come on. My model says you're ready. You got to do it. You got to get out there. Don't be a wimp, you know? And, uh, and so he's, he's like, okay. So he goes out and he trains and he just fails in all of his workouts. And then he said, I'm just too tired. I said, okay, rest again. So I gave him another week of rest. Um, so now it's like three weeks, four weeks after our training camp. And then finally, he's, he's still really tired. So five weeks after this training camp, he calls me up and says, Hunter, I'm ready to really go hard. But now 
his chronic training load went from 40 to 80 to 100. Now it's back down to 40 again. And that is a perfect example of, you know, ramping up your training too quickly, too soon, that really the training camp, it was meaningless. Like it, it just didn't help him at all. And so those are the kind of mistakes that we made early on in learning about how, the, how to, to train athletes and using the model. And now we know like, wow, you go to a training camp, I don't care if your chronic training loads 100 or 120, a really hard, intense week of training at a training camp, you need to rest the week after. Um, and so that's a, a key principle for, for a lot of athletes, even, even, even pros, you know, now. All these numbers, all this obsession, all these fancy graphs boil down to one thing and well, two things, good sensations and good results, right? Um, we just got finished with the world championships and there was some amazing performances across the board. Um, it'd be kind of tough to go down and we'd probably have a whole other podcast on this, but the thing that kind of jumped out at me and it has been for the last couple years is youth we see these young riders going faster much sooner than they ever have in the past and a lot of people say that this is uh due to them living like a pro as a junior i mean i don't know if you saw the shots but Remco Evenepoel, after stages of the Vuelta or even after the World Championship this year, the first thing he does is he gets his head unit off, looks at it, and puts it in his pocket. But what is your opinion as a super coach of how these young riders are, both, both men and women, you know, Zoe Bagstedt is another perfect example. She just absolutely dominated the, the junior women's road race and time trial. But what is it that these young kids are doing, in your opinion, that allow them to basically step over all those other years of development that previous generations have right into the winner's circle of these races. Right. That, that's, a, that's a great observation, and, and, it, and it really is an interesting transition um, because I think our era, um, you know, I remember uh, Damiano Canego who won the Giro when he was, I think, 21 or 20, and he was like the youngest winner ever during that time, and it just blew him out, right? He just he never won anything after that. Um, and so it was so interesting to me to see uh, Pagacha win at his young of age. And I was like, oh, man, he's done. Right. It just cooked him. He's never going to do this again. And 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 that's absolutely not the case. Um, but that's I think that's the difference. Like back in our era, you know, we didn't have the coaches that were giving us a structured training plan that had periods of rest, of programmed in rest, and periods and downtime periods. And so, you know, you guys both know too, right? We have to recharge our battery. So in order to go to the next level. So you know, you, you have this, this incredible season of training and racing, but you have to have that off season in order to recharge your battery to come back again. You know, and the riders who don't do that 
Um, they're just kind of mediocre the next year. Or the riders who just don't do anything in the offseason, then they spend the whole season getting back to the level they were before. Where now um, it's clear that these riders have great coaches who are using their power meters early on. They're making sure that they're going through these rest and work cycles in a really positive way giving them those rest periods when they need them, giving those big, hard efforts when they need them, and developing them, um, like you said, as pros. Uh, I think that's the big difference. And uh, it, it's, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's exciting. It's really interesting to see. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from values.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Hunter. So I, I have to ask you now that we talked about the, the talents and how the young kids uh, go fast. Um, me, uh, old school, you know, typical road cyclist and then having an off season. We just talked about the off season. That's important, right? So now you take these super crazy, super talents. They are super impressive and spectacular. Tom Pitcock, for example. In like within 12 months, he is Olympic champion mountain bike, world champion cycle cross, and wins one of the hardest stages in the Tour de France. How long do you think can his body and his mind keep that up? Is that good for him? I mean, he's spectacular, like a shooting star. He leaves everybody in awe. The same for Wout van Aert or Mathieu van der Poel. They do cycle cross and, and, and you know, they race all year long. Is that sustainable because he trained better and smarter or will he be burned out in two years from now? What's your point on that? That's a great question. And, and uh, I think that um, if you look at purely the, the physiological side of it, what our bodies can do, um, he's going to be able to go for a long period of time as long as he stays injury free. Right. I mean, that's the key. You got to be injury free. Um And, you know, continue to have these really smart um, periods of rest and work. So I think that that's that's critical. I mean, I, I think that the, the thing you see really is how long you're motivated, how long you personally are mentally motivated to do this. Right. Is it still fun? Are you still enjoying traveling? You know, are you still enjoying the, the, the pro lifestyle? And I think that's really the, the thing that, that, that changes as we age, right? All of a sudden, you got a, a wife, you got kids, you got all this stuff, right? You know, you, you know right? Um, 
And it's like, oh, man, I got to go to the race, you know, but the kids are going to do this really fun thing. I'd like to actually go do that. So, you know, I think that's part of the the, the maturing of the athlete and, um, and, and that piece. I think from a, a purely physical standpoint, you know, most cyclists we know peak at an age of 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Women peak at 35 through 40. Um, so, you know, Pitcock theoretically should have a long career. Just to have the opportunity to ask you, one of the, the most world renowned experts in the area, being so dependent on the power meter, what are some other traits of a good coach outside of the X's and O's? What are those building blocks? We recently had Rod Ellingworth on, and um, I'm a, a big fan of his and, and the way that he looks at the building blocks, not just being you know the power meter, but so many more things. What are some of the other things that you that makes you a coach, a great coach? Right. I think that, I mean, as a coach, we wear so many hats, right? We have to be great um, at, at, uh, at communication. We have to be great at, um, you know, a little bit of sports psychology. We have to understand nutrition at a really high level. Um, you know, we have to be great at motivating and we have to understand ex exercise physiology. So there's so many hats that a coach, a cycling coach has to wear. Um, and when you kind of compare it, it's like, wow, you know, the roles are, 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 are very highly varied. Um, to be a good coach, I think that, uh, number one, uh, you really have to um, m quickly learn how to speak and talk with the athlete and the, as the person, right? Because... Um, you know, one athlete, you may need to be the drill sergeant. Like, you better freaking do these intervals or I'm going to kick your butt, right? You have to be the drill sergeant. Another athlete needs, you know, somebody to, to be their cheerleader. Like, come on, come on, Bobby, you can really do this, man. Come on, I know you can do this, right? Um, another athlete, you know, you need to, to, uh, to just listen to them and be their sounding board, right? To be their kind of psychologist a little bit. Um, so that I think is really critical to understand the athlete and be able to speak to the athlete where they are. Um, and then, uh, you know, of, of course, certainly um, thinking about it from the, the perspective of applying the science, right? So that's, you know, we got the science, we got the power meter and all that stuff. We've got the athlete that we're dealing with. Then we have to take all of this, you know, in between and apply it in a way that makes sense from a perspective of adaptation, um, you know, overload, all those things. And uh, I think that that takes years of experience. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, um, you know, coaches and, and I think in, in a lot of professions, you know, you get to a certain place in your profession um, and it looks like the, the person, whether that's a, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, a construction worker, um, whomever, uh, house builder, whatever they are, it doesn't matter. But they know exactly what has to be done right then and there before everybody else does. 
And it's like, oh man, they have some magic that they use to, to, to see the future. But really, that's just thousands of experiences of being in that same place before and seeing it before and knowing, oh, this is going to come next. Oh, this is going to come after that. This is going to come after that. And so being able to, to, to know exactly how that person's going to respond in these different step-by-steps, that's also really critical. So if, I mean, technology develops quickly these days, if there would be a portable device that could measure lactic acid more or less instantly, would that be very helpful or would that be, no, that's too much info, too complicated. If you would know, okay, he did a five-minute effort and he got that much lactic acid, would that help you uh, to coach even better or would it be information overkill? I, well, so there's a there's a case for, I think, where um, you could create a uh, intervals based on the exposure to that lactate lactate in the blood and so maybe you know in order to to gain the right adaptation that you want you would say okay wow i need five minutes of exposure to this level of lactate maybe let's just say that's 4.8 or something you know and so if i you know the first minute and a half i'm getting up to 4.8 And then I'm at 4.8 or between there and 5.5, give a range, and I stay there for five minutes, then I'm getting the right amount of training stress from a, um, um, an intracellular perspective, you know, inside the body, let's say, let's just say inside the body. Um, and then you could also say, well, let's let it come down to a certain level. Let's let it come back down to one Miller mole. And then it's got to be there for five minutes before I do that again to create that additional exposure. Um, so there's definitely a case for that. Um, I think that would be very interesting um, to be able to do that. Would it be better than power meter data? Mm, hard to say, right? Hard to say. Would you would you train more efficiently? Possibly. Um, I think that that's where some of these things, you know, you, you kind of have to, to pick and choose these things. You know, I mean, you know, I love the, 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 the blood glucose monitoring, like the super sapiens. I mean, that, that's a huge tool for us as coaches and as athletes to understand where our blood glucose levels are. Um, the, the, the things that, that measure your stress uh, outside of sport, right? Like the, the aura ring or the whoop strap. Those things are really, really useful as well, because then it's kind of bringing in, here's the life stress piece of it. Here's the training stress piece of it. So let's pull that together. Um, so using those tools, I think, is, is, is definitely possible. Jens, when, um, you know, when, when you were doing, um, when you were in a breakaway, you know, and, and many of your breakaways, Did you use your power meter in the break to, um, you know, to, to look at it from a perspective of let's let's say, for example, you're taking a pull in the breakaway and you look down and you see 500 watts. That's too much or 300 watt or 300, 400 watts. That's not enough. 
Um, would you look at it from that perspective? And then when you were when you were behind the wheel, when you get back on the wheel, you know, and and you you would you try and minimize your power when you were sitting on? I I was racing a lot of instinct, and I actually more than once actually maybe it's the wrong answer. I'm sorry for that. Um, more than once I actually took the head unit off before the race saying, okay, today I want to race. I don't want to collect data. I want to race. And I had teammates, um, and uh, I've seen with other athletes, they then said, oh, yeah, my power meter told me I'm on my threshold, and then I let go. And I'm like, yeah, but it was only 35 seconds to go to the top of the climb. If you could have, if you would have been just digging a little deeper. And I never wanted to know that uh, this piece of technology tells me you're basically fucked. Stop pedaling. Give up. No. So I could always lie to myself. I I have a little more. I have a little more. Maybe I didn't have it, but I didn't see it. I didn't see it black on white in numbers that I'm at my threshold for five minutes and I should be exploding any second. So that's why at uh, breakaways, I, I didn't look too much. I didn't want to get distracted. I, I did listen to my body and I did what you said. I, I, I felt how, how fast, how hard I pull. And then when I'm back, I did listen to my body. Okay, I recover. I get my arms a little closer together to to, and I could feel it in my body. Um, so I I I went that far that by the noise of the wind and the way my hair and my neck moved, I could tell you if I would be in a perfect slipstream. By the noise of the wind and the way my hair was moving, at the back of my head. So I think I did raise a lot of instinct and I did instinctively a lot of things that you would probably say, hey, you did right, proved by science, right? So we probably worked in the same way, but at uh, some of the breakaways, I, I, I didn't look uh, too much on it. But I focused a lot on power meter and data for the hour record, my last event as a pro. That was, that was a lot, the most science, basically, I ever used in my career. I used in the last months of my career. Ah, uh, gotcha. That was, I was curious about that because you knew exactly how many watts you needed to hold for the hour in order to do that, right? Hunter, I, I'm really offended that you didn't ask me that question. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm I there. mean, I, I will say with Yenzi, Everything that he says is absolutely true. That whole wind in his hair probably made a little bit more sense when he had his little mullet going. You know, he he, he has it a lot shorter these days. But it used to be so frustrating. Like, Jens would use that fancy SRM that we had basically as a speedometer, right? And then when we got to training camp and we had to push the set button, his data, you know, his storage was full because he never oh, downloaded it. Oh, but I mean, I mean, I, that's why Jens and I have been best friends for so long because we're totally opposite, right? Like, you know, I would sit there and read a book. He would sit there and play Game Boy. I would sit there and look at my files. He wouldn't even download it. Um, but, you know, you got you to gotta, you gotta give a lot of credit to a guy that yeah. listens to the sensation of the hair on the back of his neck. So I think if there is a perfect combination of those two, of the guys that don't need to be judged by the numbers that you know can listen to their sensations for for me those power numbers and like why i said that uh, i was a little offended that you don't uh, didn't ask me that question was to this day in gravel events because i'm just going out there to 
have fun, you know, pleasure and participation. I don't care about placing or paying. So when I'm in the thick of it, I'll look down and I'll be like, wait, <laughs> I'm a hundred watts over my FTP right now. This is not going to last long for me. And if it does, I'm going to be suffering. So boom, take it back down. You know, what do they say? The the tortoise w wins the race in the end. And it, it works in that way. But to Jens's point, it doesn't work that way in, in professional racing, especially nowadays. I mean, it's insane the spontaneity that's being projectiled out into the Peloton these days. Like, we can't even watch it on TV and understand it. I can't imagine what someone like you looking at power files would, would do. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's really interesting, um, you know, from both places. And, um, you know, I mean, one understanding your sensations, right? Those are so critical as a professional athlete, as any athlete, right? I mean, in how you are in, in sport. And then two, um, also using that to connect with what the numbers actually say. Um, and, and so I think those are, it's, it's always a tough combination to do those two things. And, um, you know, I, I, and, and I agree too with you, Jens, like, you know, you got to race your bike, right? You just got to race. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you, you, whatever the number says, I don't care what the number says. Like if the breakaway is going right now on this hill, you do everything you can to make the breakaway. Right. And, and if you blow up, you blow up, but you certainly don't let, let it be a limiter, um, to your, to your efforts. Uh, and then I'm the same thing with YouTube. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, we've done some of these gravel events together and stuff and same ones. And it's like, you know, I'm just out there to have fun. And, and, uh, it's like, man, I, I don't want to be on the side of the road with cramps. I, I did the hurry, did that. <laughs> I, I got a question. Um, I was curious when you talked about uh, training peaks and, uh, coaching programs and so on, is there a difference between coaching a man and a woman? Is there like, like in, in body and physics, do they need more intensity, less, Uh, their races are shorter. So do they need less endurance, more intensity, more power, more speed? Is there a difference to coach a man and a woman's body? Is And what's the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think that that uh, for sure they don't need the same big long rides the men do just because they're not doing five-hour rides where they burn 4,000 kilojoules um, of energy so that they don't they don't need to do those um, unless they're doing something crazy like Leadville or the the 200 mile unbound gravel race um, then then of course they do um, I think also what's what's very interesting is the fact that um, their nutrition needs are different Uh, and so you have to be very aware of, or they have to be very aware of their nutrition needs. Um, and so maybe that's not just less food, maybe that's more food, and maybe that's a different type of food that they respond to. From a training perspective, um, they, they're, they're humans, right? So they also respond to training just like guys do. So that's, that's not that different. Um, the women that I've coached, they, I love coaching women because they'll do exactly what you ask them to do. Uh, they, they don't bring any ego to it. 
you know, you tell them to do 10 hill repeats, they'll do 10 hill repeats. Um, you know, the guys will be like, well, I feel like doing five and they'll do five where they're like, I'm going to do 25 today and they'll do 25, <laughs> you know? So, um, they're, they're easier to coach from that perspective. Um, you know, they're definitely not men. So there's differences between those. And there's the, the whole menstrual cycle thing that, that is important to understand too, for women as a coach. Um, at the very elite level, most of those ladies don't have menstrual cycles, so the, they're so thin that that's kind of stopped, so that's not really as a big a factor. But for the rest of, of the world, then, yeah, we need to understand what to do. You know, do they train uh, harder on those days? They train less leading up to it. They train less the days, you know, behind it. You know, how does their body respond? Um, so there, there are some subtle differences. Well, I think cyclists and cycling um, is like art, right? You got to be an artist. You got to accept art in your life because there's no real um, perfect answer to, to every question. I even read something recently about the UCI wanting there to be more art uh, exposed through cycling. But I, I'm not going to lie. I've been on a couple uh, Zoom calls with you. And you always have an interesting piece of art behind you. And, you know, full transparency, Project Forza is something that Jens and I are involved with. But tell our listeners, because obviously they can't see you right now, um, a little bit about this artistic project that you have going on right now. Thanks. Yeah. No. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I was I've looked at so many pieces of data over all the years and um, and and many, many times I've looked at it and said, oh, man, that's art. Right. And that's a cool graph, neat combination of colors or lines or whatever or shapes and, and have thought about them and, and said that's really fun. And so when this this non-fungible tokens these nfts became popular last year then i thought oh wow this is a great way to one create art using power data uh so so taking the the athlete's data like yours or yen's um and and then making a piece of art with that data uh, and so that's what we did with Project Fuerza. We, we got some of the best riders, athletes in the world. Um, we've got Mark Cavendish. We've got Garrett Thomas. We've got Peter Sagan. Uh, we have Jens. We have you. Uh, we have amazing, amazing athletes. We took the power data from a lot of these really incredible races and then turned those, created a story around that. Uh, so, 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 you know, this, this one that, uh, is in my background right now, I know everybody can't see this. This is Jens's, um, you know, we call this the black sun. This is Jens's 2006 tour de France stage six. Um, and, uh, it was a hot day in the tour de France in 2006. It was a really hot year. Um, I was getting all of Jens's data that year and analyzing it and putting that um, up on training peaks. And so I remember looking at the stage and, and reading everything about it. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, this was a really cool one because it's got like the black sun here and his data in here. Um, 
you know, and it shows like, you know, his normalized power for five hours and 42 minutes, I think was like 330 watts or something for five hours. Um, I mean, it, it's just, you know, the numbers are amazing. So when you buy a, a Fuerza, when you buy an NFT, not only do you get this amazing piece of art that comes from human biometric effort, right? I mean, this is the first time anybody in the world has ever done this, taken human biometric effort and turned it into art. Um, you also get the power file, so which is super cool, right? You, you buy this, this amazing piece of art and then you actually get the power file and you get to analyze the data yourself. And so whoever buys one of these things, you know, like Bobby, one of yours that uh, I love is, is uh, the Tower of California uh, stage four. Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, it's this beautiful uh, piece of art with the, that, that iconic bridge that goes across, you know, right on the coast of California that you see all the pictures of um, and it's a really cool and, 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 you know, what's really, what's really fun analyzing your data, Bobby, is that, um, you know, every time, and you tell me, I'm, you tell me if I'm wrong here. So, but I, but every time when you rode well, right, when you were on form, right, when you were, you were peaking, um, you always, always, and you're not a sprinter, right? But you always were in the top 10 or 15 at the finish with the sprinters. And it was just so obvious to see your, when you were riding well, because you were always right there at the finish. Is that, is that, is that the case? Well, you know, back then they didn't have the three kilometer rule. You know, they only had the one kilometer rule. And if I was on form, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting gapped off at the end. So I would be up there just on the wheels, you know, out of Robbie McEwen's way, out of all the big sprinters way, but just enough to make sure that A, I was safe from the crashes and B, that I wouldn't get gapped off at the end. So um, you've probably gone through some of those files there. Um, like I said, they weren't um, kept in, in Training Peaks or WKO uh five but um let's just say i think some of the sprinters can s hit my max watt with just one leg <laughs> so don't think for a second i i i was doing that through power i was doing that through um being a little crafty uh, you know sticking on the wheels right no i think that that was that's really fun and you know we see that uh, i don't know if you guys watched uh you know garrett thomas in uh the tour of swiss and then, of course, in the Tour de France this year, um, but you know, he, he, you, you, and he have the same style of racing. I think when I watch him race, and I remember with you, Bobby, too. I mean, he always is right there at the front, at the very end of the stage, even though you know he's not, he's going to get crushed by the the sprinters, but he's staying out of the way. He's riding smart. He's right there. Um, and so it was fun to kind of to look at your data. But yeah, we've had a great time at Project Fuerza here, and it's been a pleasure to have both of you guys be a part of this. Hunter, it was a great pleasure to catch up with you, talking coaching, talking training, and talking art. Thanks a million for being our guest tonight. Well, thank you. It's, been, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thank you to Hunter Allen for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.